All right, good evening. It is Wednesday night, July 22nd, 2020. Uh, welcome to our weekly um, commentary podcast from the Intrinsic Value Wealth Report uh, Radio. So uh, I'm going to start out with just a little overview of a lead article I wrote for the July 13th commentary. Uh, and the subject is, is the stock market a system one thinker? So what is system one thinking? And really, um, there's two parts to this. There's system one thinking and system two thinking. A little background on that. Uh, I teach um, a couple of different, um, well, actually several different classes at various universities. Uh, this term I'm teaching two classes on decision making at California Baptist University in Riverside and a course in personal uh, finance, uh, personal, basically personal financial planning and portfolio management um, and risk management in that regards at California State University of Los Angeles, Cal State LA. So in the um, decision-making class, uh, it's been several weeks ago now, maybe two or three weeks ago, um, we were talking about, well, the, the subject of the, of the strategy and decision-making class is what we call it at, at Cal Baptist. Um, the way that people think, um, and this is pretty well established in the psychological literature, the way that people think it's, it's in two parts. It's a system one part and a system two part. Um, now, the person that really made these concepts popular is uh, Daniel Kahneman. He actually won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on system one and two thinking, system one and system two thinking, um, and those related concepts. Um, now, just as an interesting little footnote, Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist, um, and he and his um, uh, partner, Amos Tversky, um, you know, spent many, many, many years, they're both university professors and researchers, spent many, many years research, researching these fields. Um, but again, they're psychologists. Um, no, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics, in economics, okay? The interesting part about that is he had actually never taken an economics course uh, before he won the, the Nobel Prize um, in, uh, in economics. He won the, uh, the, the prize because of his work on behavioral uh, the behavioral finance, uh, behavioral psychology, uh, behavioral economics, and so forth. And uh, it contributed so greatly to the field of economics that that's why he won the, uh, um, the, uh, the Nobel Prize. We'll talk more about that maybe in a, a future podcast. Um, it's not really all that relevant for tonight's discussion. But the point is, is that he, he talks about the system one and two thinking. By the way, he did not come up with those terms. Um, it was two other psychologists, and those terms are used quite widely in, in psychology. So that's just a little background. So what is system one and system two thinking? System one thinking is the very, um, you know, quick response. If I asked you, um, you know, how old you are, what's two plus three? You're going to, you know, two plus three, you're going to say five without even thinking about it. Uh, you're going to say your age without, you know, there's no thought. When you drive your car, uh, if you've been driving for any period of time, yeah, that's very, very just, that's system one thinking, you just drive. It's nothing you really think about. System two thinking, on the other hand, is the kind of thinking that you really have to put more thought into. Um, in other words, you, th you think through those, those situations. Um, and I have a little bit more elaboration on these in the uh, July 13th lead article commentary, but you get the idea, right? So system one thinking is is, is just the, it's the automatic responses. Actually, that's one of the ways it's defined. System two thinking is 
the more deliberate uh, research, you know, rational thought process, maybe the scientific method in extreme cases, um, and so forth. And so as we were talking about this, the system one and system two thinking one night, um, and part of this class is also strategic management. And so I was showing uh, the class um, some thoughts on how companies create value and uh, if, you know, shareholder value, um, value for their shareholders, and how that relates also to investors, how investors can look at companies and see if value has been created or not. Um, so as I was looking at all these notions, and there's one chart that I draw often when I teach these uh, classes, uh, you can see that in the weekly commentary. This is a podcast, so I can't, can't show it to you on the, the screen. Uh, we won't do this as a YouTube tonight, but uh, you can look in the commentary. Um, and then way down kind of toward the bottom under the charts review and thought is, is a chart. But just imagine this in your mind. Um, that's probably going to be in your system two mind, not your system one mind, by the way. So imagine um, a chart that shows the intrinsic value line. The intrinsic value is what we calculate. That's a very system two process because um, we have to go through a lot of calculations and a lot of forecasting and a lot of thought as to what uh, the value of a particular company is or what the value of the market is. Um, and so for tonight's purposes, um, we'll, we'll talk about it in terms of the, of the market, but it works equally, equally as well for, uh, for an individual stock. So picture this line that where we've calculated the intrinsic value um, for today, and then a number of periods going back five years, say, and a number of periods going forward five years. So you have a you know, yellow, yellow line. I mean, it doesn't have to be a straight line, by the way. It probably won't be. It could be, you know, multilinear, you know, or, uh, you know, any kind of shape. Um, but we usually depict it in, in theoretical terms as, as being a straight line. Now, around that line, picture the stock market, okay, um, as as fluctuating, generally speaking, particularly when we're talking about the market, the market will fluctuate around that intrinsic value line, sometimes be higher, sometimes lower. Um, and um, there is, you know, a whole lot of concepts, much, much beyond the, uh, the scope of this, of this evening's discussion, but there's a lot of, lot of evidence that there is something called a reversion to the mean. In other words, um, the market will fluctuate around the intrinsic value line, but because all the market participants, or at least the, the preponderance, have some idea of what they actually value the market should be over time, then the market will tend to fluctuate, but you know, stay kind of in a band, some kind of a band around the, uh, the actual intrinsic value. And again, um, reversion to the mean has, has been studied quite a bit, and there's pretty strong evidence that there is, that the market will revert um, uh, to the mean, uh, which is gonna center around that, that intrinsic value line. So as I was talking to the class about these notions and looking at this chart, um, it occurred to me that the market actually exhibits the system one and system two thinking. In other words, as we as analysts and uh, you know, portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, economists, and so forth, we're calculating the, the value of the market, uh, that in, in essence, that intrinsic value line, in whatever way we do that, by the way. Um, you know, some people may use uh, discount cash flow models, they may use multiples. Um, a newer concept I'm working on is um, not a new concept at all, actually. It's, it's a very old concept, but it's, it's one I haven't used a lot in the past. I'm actually thinking about incorporating this in my analysis, and that's the Tobin Q. James Tobin, uh, who won the Nobel Prize um, sometime back for his 
is um, uh, derivation of the, uh, the Q ratio. So they call it Tobin's Q. Um, just another way to value the, uh, the, the market. And so as I'm looking at, at the, the, value, the intrinsic value line that we calculate, calculate we actually use the, uh, the discount cash flow approach um, in our work. Um, and then looking at the market fluctuating around that, I realized that we're really looking at a system one and system two process. So the system two is that very um, you know, deliberate um, calculation of, of value for the market in whatever way we do it. Um, but the market, um, when it has the daily fluctuations around the, um, the intrinsic value line, is really acting in a system one fashion. And if you think about it, you, know, you look at uh, Yahoo Finance or whatever you choose to look at, Bloomberg terminals, um, as to you know, what's, what's driving the market fluctuations. And of course, it's always a matter of opinion, but they're usually probably pretty close as to, to what, um, you know, what the current consensus is for the market. But it's, it's a very daily, emotional, um, automatic, in essence, response um, that's composed of traders, you know, portfolio managers, hedge funds. A lot of the market is driven now by um, computer algorithms. But they're programmed really in, in, to, to act in a very system one um, fashion. So the, the, the market with its daily fluctuations up and down, that in, in my view is, is system one thinking. Someone asked me the other day, actually I get asked all the time, uh, well, Dr. Wendy, what do you think is, you know, when's the market going to correct? Because as you know, I've been saying for quite some time, and I'm going to say it again tonight, the market is overvalued. So I get asked, well, when's the market going to correct? And I always tell them, now I can talk in terms of, of decision theory, system one and system two. I, I always say, I have no idea when it's going to correct. I can only tell you that it's overvalued or undervalued at any particular time or fairly valued, you know, whatever the case may be. Now it's very clearly overvalued. Um, but to try and say when it's going to correct, you know, that's trying to predict a system one process. And, and that the very nature of being system one process you know, the system one tends to be emotional, irrational. So how can you predict something that's emotional and irrational? That's one of the reasons I like applying the system one and system two uh, thinking to the market because it, it really does help explain, maybe bridge that gap as to why you can't really predict the market on a very, very short-term basis. The only thing we can say is in the long-term um, that the market, you know, will correct. It will revert to the mean in essence, reversion to the mean. Um, but that can take a very, very long time. As I've often said, uh, markets, uh, especially in the last, you know, um, you know, the last few years now, the markets, for the most part, been, been in an overvalued state. Um, and that, I think, is because of the system one thinking. In other words, people aren't really thinking through the consequences. Um, so so th that's the notion of system one and two thinking, still doing some more work on that. Um, and, uh, but I think for, for now, I think that's a, a pretty good description of how markets work. And, um, uh, you know, another point I wanted to make here real quick for tonight's commentary, uh, and I've said this on several occasions, you know, the economy is in really much worse shape, I think, than the average person realizes. I think most economists, the Federal Reserve uh, economists and, and um, you know, a lot of hedge fund, people that really study the economy uh, and the markets, I think, know how bad the economy is. The average person who's really operating at more of a system one level um, doesn't really appreciate how, how in, in what 
uh, really bad condition of the economies in on a global basis, not just the U.S. economy. Um, and if you look at our commentaries, just you know, look back going, you know, this really this coronavirus situation started about um, you know beginning of March. Uh, maybe there were some early signs uh, at the end of February. Heck, I jumped on a plane in uh, early March, March 6, I think, flew out to uh, to Dallas. So we knew that there was something called a coronavirus and that it looked like it was going to be bad, but we didn't know how bad. And like I say, I still jumped on a plane and we got to the meeting and everyone was bumping elbows and bumping fists. And, but we still sat next to each other and, and had our meetings. Uh, fortunately, I don't think anyone got sick. But we were still early in the, uh, in the coronavirus uh, stage, too. There weren't that many infections out there. Um, and so in just a very, very short period of time, March, April, I think by about April or so, um, we really, really were really seeing the effects of, of what was happening to the economy. Um, and that hasn't really abated. But if you look back at the commentaries, I've tried to document, um, you know, we do this on a normal process anyway, where I look at the, the headlines from the previous week and I put those in the commentary just so that people can see what's going on. Um, and there was a period of time in, you know, end of March, beginning of April, I think even into May, when there was, you know, two or three times the number of, of headlines that I was quoting and they were all bad. Um, and the, for the most part, the headlines are still coming out bad. And of course, now we know that, that um, across this country and in many other places in the world, the uh, coronavirus has, has picked back up again. So um, maybe I think anecdotally speaking, um, the, uh, the best uh, anecdotal evidence um, that the coronavirus is likely to get worse before it gets better is um, President Trump said, I believe it was today or yesterday, um, that you know he acknowledged that the uh, um, the coronavirus will get uh, worse before it gets better, and he's starting to wear a mask and encouraging people to wear a mask. So um, again, anecdotally speaking, if if uh, President Trump says it's going to get worse, I would I would put my money I bet on that one. Uh, it is now. The good news is, um, I don't want to be a uh, you know completely doom and gloom. It looks like we're going to probably have a vaccine um, or several vaccines approved by the end of the year. Um, things are really making good progress on that front. Um, so you know there, that's that's something to look forward to. But again, this could be you know probably a rough six months. Um, and I've again in the commentary, as you if you know, you can follow my commentary here. Uh, we talked about the psychology of you know. Uh, where people fall on this, you know, do they believe in the virus? Do they know it? Do they understand it? Are they being defiant and, and so forth? And there's so many different uh, angles on that. But the reality is uh, the cases have been been increasing. Uh, more damage has been done to the economy. And so even though we may have a vaccine by the end of the year, um, we're still looking at, what, five and a half months um, uh, before the end of the year. Um, five months, I guess, yeah, five, five months and a week or so, um, a lot more damage can be done to the economy and is, and is being done. So when this is all, all over, then we have to start, you know, we have to get back to, and, and by the way, we're shutting the economy down in many states, uh, as you all know. Uh, many of you have been affected by that personally. So there's a lot more to go um, for both the virus and the, the economy. Um, but when, we, when things are back to normal, so to speak, um, you know, then we start putting the economy back together. Um, and the forecasts for that are, are again, not, not good. I mean, look at the, the viruses can be over someday. The economy will recover someday. In the economy's case, it's going to take a while. And when I say that the economy is in worse shape than 
most people realize. Uh, I mean, that's the bad news is that so much damage structurally has been done uh, to the economy. You know, businesses are out of business, uh, businesses, big businesses, others have scaled back. Um, and you don't turn those things around overnight, um, especially the businesses that went out of business. I mean, it took years to build them in the first place. So um, anyway, that, that's kind of the situation. Um, uh, for the valuation of the market, um, hasn't really changed much from, uh, from last week's commentary. Uh, as of Friday the 17th, last Friday, the Dow was, uh, had a uh, historical PD ratio of 22.62, uh, the S&P 500 historical price earnings ratio of 27.72. Those are not uh, undervalued. Those are not, those are overvalued markets. I mean, that's, there's no, no question about that. Um, as I mentioned, um, actually, again, it came from, from the class I teach at, at Cal Baptist, the strategy and decision-making. Uh, the textbook we're using uh, uses Tobin's Q, and so I got kind of intrigued by that. Actually, I got home about 1.30 this morning, and I, I was so intrigued by it, I, I didn't go to bed until 3.30 this morning. Um, just researching Tobin's Q, and I've, it, it's a difficult one to calculate, but I've, I've got some good sources on how to do that. Um, there's no magic to it. Uh, it was it was one of the first things that came around. I think it was back in the 1960s um, when James Tobin came up with this. It was kind of the first, maybe or not not the first, but one of the one of the earlier valuation measures uh, for the market. Um, and so it it was real popular back when it first came out. Now we have so many other tools and, and things that um, that are maybe as good or better. But it's it's easy enough to uh, to get the data and so. I'll I may start including that in, uh, in the commentary using Tobin's Q. So more on that later. Probably we'll do a, a, podcast, a podcast on that as well um, in the coming weeks. So um, just uh, wrapping up, you know, how should we be investing? Uh, as I've been saying for the last uh, uh, couple, of, uh, couple of months, I think now, um, you know, um, just if, if, if you have an investment program, just keep, keep it up. Uh, with the market overvalued like it is, don't jump back in in a big way because the market is overvalued. Um, and as you know from the chart that we've uh, talked about a lot, and this is, the chart is referenced in my um, commentaries, including the July 13th commentary on System 1 and System 2 thinking, so you can just click that hyperlink uh, to get to the chart. Um, uh, you know, if you invest in an overvalued market, um, you're going to um, you're going to lose out over over time. I mean, historically speaking, that's uh, that's been the way it is. And there's a lot of economic theory and just rational rationale, good, good rationale as to why that should be the case. And so, um, but uh, you know, keep an investment program going. If you don't have one, start one. But again, don't start slow and, and invest slow. Don't jump back in. These are these are overvalued markets. Um, however, especially for young people, if you Look out over the next, you know, a lot of my students are very, very young, uh, in their late teens and twenties and so forth and thirties. Um, so in their lifetimes, if you go out twenty years, thirty years, uh, maybe even fifteen years, um, you know, even though this market's overvalued, it should and most probably will look like a, you know, it's a good time to get in, even though it's maybe maybe. To, in today's standards, uh, overvalued. So the point is, um, just you know, keep investing steadily, uh, dollar cost averaging, as we've been talking about. Um, but don't jump back in um, because it is again, it's not a cheap market. Well, that's it for this evening. Um, 
have a good evening and we will be back next week.